um, as always is the case, there is a word to be preached today. And I have not preached in front of people in about uh, last month I did. I preached a youth service and I preached a funeral. Um, but this is the third time in eight months that I have been able to preach in front of people. So um, get ready. I got a lot of stuff to say. All right. But I'm just grateful. So as you know, as you've been watching online and watching through live and listening, you have noticed that we have been walking through the book of Acts and we have been carefully navigating our way through the book of Acts. And we have come now to Acts chapter eight and what seems to be just a a, a little nothing of, of, a, of a passage which doesn't really say a whole lot has a tremendous amount of, of backing behind it and importance to it that we need to, to look at today. So you'll take note of the sermon today. The title of today's sermon is The Hate You Give. The Hate You Give. Now, you may recognize this as um, the title of a, a movie and a book, but I I want to look at this today from a biblical perspective, and we're going to look at the life of Paul and look at what this actually means for us today. Now, I'm going to begin today's sermon with a statement that is not intended to be controversial, but in 2020, almost anything you do is controversial, but it is certainly not my intention. But this is the statement. Welcome back. All right. So there has not been a group throughout the annals of history, throughout all of time, that has been more persecuted in our world than that of Christians. There has not been a group more persecuted in our world than that of Christians. Now, that may rub some people the wrong way and maybe draws the ire on my part of some of the members um, in this church, but it is to stand to reason that There is not a group that has ever been more persecuted than the Christian church. Now, in order for me to say that, I'm not just addressing the Christian church, which origin we saw began in Acts, but I'm also addressing the church as it began with God in the Old Covenant and the Israelites and in the New Covenant with the New Testament church through Jesus Christ. If you track that history all the way to the captivity of the Israelites, to the Egyptians, to the Babylonians, to the Assyrians, if you track that history and connect that history with ours as Christians, you would note that there is not a more persecuted group of people throughout all of history than God's people. Now, there may be some wise guys and gals who may think of particular groups that they feel like have suffered persecution all throughout history. But with every one of those, even if it has continued today, there are definable periods of peace and then there are definable periods of persecution, except for the church of God, which is there has been unending persecution since our origin. Now, I want you to understand this, that. Even in the midst of our persecution, regardless of the reason and regardless of the people who were being persecuted, if it's us or if it's a particular other religion or a particular race, all of this hate comes with a backstory. Nobody hates for no reason. It all comes with a background. It all comes with people who have a reason for why they hate the people they hate. 
and why they hate the way that they hate. We have spent a great deal of time talking just about that, but also looking in general at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others who despise the church. But today we will look at something different. Today we're going to do a case study. We're going to do a case study of somebody that you all recognize and we all revere him as Paul the Apostle. But today we're going to do a case study on the life of Saul or Paul, the rebel against God. We are going to look at his life and we're going to look at how his heart merges with a wicked system of beliefs and creates this man who has so much hate in his heart that he spared no expense at persecuting the church of God. Now, we are introduced to Saul like we saw him last week as Stephen is being stoned. We are introduced to Saul as the person who is gathering the coats of those people who were stoning Stephen. We're introduced to him as an, an endorser of the evil that was partaking Stephen as the life was leaving his body. In uh, verse 58 of chapter 7, that is when we first learn of him. Now, he takes their garments, as we remember, so that he can stone, so they can stone Stephen as well and as effectively as possible. And so they lay their garments down at the feet of one young man, and the Bible describes this young man as being Saul. Now they put their garments among someone in that community who they could trust, and it was him. Now, there is an interesting and seemingly sudden transformation in the life of Saul, where he seems to go from witness and observer to endorser to active oppressor of Christians. Now, the question that we must wrestle with today is what could drive a man into such hate? And we can see commonalities in the life of Paul. But I guarantee you, you're going to see commonalities in the lives of many people today. Listen, I mentioned that there has been um, an incredible amount of hate and anger and rage from particular groups of people. And no, this is not a political statement because it comes from both sides. And so what I hope to do today is that we're going to look at the life of Saul and see how his heart and his system come together and lead to the hatred that is in his life. So like I said, we will do a case study on the life of Paul and see where we settle. So jump with me, if you will, back into Acts. But this time we're going to Acts chapter eight. And we're going to be at verse one. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray. Father God, we are, first of all, thankful that we are back, God. We are thankful that we did not have to go a second longer without fellowship and without gathering in your name. So, God, we pray that as we dig into the word today, that you will get glory out of the word, God. But, God, that you have also reignited us to understand just how important the gathering of ourselves together really is, God. Everything that we felt, please let us know that that was because we could not fellowship. But, God, let us have a greater appreciation than ever before that we will be here today and we'll be attentive to the word of God, which we never knew we would be able to hear again in person. So we thank you now. Be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's look at the very first statement here. It says, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Saul approved of it. More than that, not only did he approve, I got to break some news to you. Not only is he the endorser, Paul himself is the orchestrator of Stephen's execution. Now, how do we know that he is the orchestrator of the execution? Because the Bible says, as we just read, that they were laying their garments at the feet of Saul. Now, why is that so important? Do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about a common community? What did the people do when they sold their possessions and what did they do with the money that they made from it? They took it and they lay it at the feet of the apostles. Why did they lay it at the feet of the apostles? They lay it at the feet of the apostles because the apostles were the authorities in the church. They laid it at the feet of the apostles because they were the ones that they trusted, but they were in charge. They were the orchestrators of the New Testament church. So you take what you have and you lay it at the feet of the authority. So what do we see here? We see these people taking their garments as they're killing a man. And though Paul himself is not stoning Stephen. He is the most responsible because he made it happen. How much do you have to hate a person? So much so that as they are dying, you approve the execution. Listen, I really want this to reverberate with us because there are some of us who have said things like if that happened to me or if so and so did that, I hope they would die or I would kill them. How much do you have to hate a person to want them dead rather than redeemed? How much do you have to hate a person, no matter how gruesome the crime against you may be, that you will lobby for their death? And not a chance for redemption. This is what is happening here. So when we think in terms of hate, this is what maximizes it, okay? 
See, everybody throws around the term hate and other 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 terms. But when we think about hate, this is a starting point that you hate somebody so much that you would do anything to destroy them. And that's what is happening in his life. This people is the measuring stick. It is not just an extreme dislike. It is this. It is hoping for and taking pleasure in the downfall and the destruction of people you dislike. That is what hate is. That is hate. It is hoping that nothing good happens in the life of your opponents. And when bad things happen, you revel in it because you love it. I want to make something clear. Okay. The cop out for many people is this. They say, well, you have to be taught to hate like this. You got to be taught to hate like this. But let me tell you what that does. That absolutely undermines how wicked each one of our hearts are apart from Jesus Christ. And you know what it does even more? It doesn't give you an explanation for how the first person being Cain commits a crime. What did he do? He slaughtered his brother in cold blood. He was not taught that. That was what was already in his heart. So if you say, well, a person has to be taught to think like this and feel like this, then you are letting them off the hook. You don't have to be taught like that. You have to be born like that. Now, this is the truth. You may, in fact, be taught a system of hate in your head. But when your heart receives it, then that is what was lying in your heart in the first place. When your heart fully accepts the hatred that's in your head, that is who you really are. So the question is this. How does hate get so deeply ingrained in our hearts? Well, I got a point for you. Point number one of two. It happens because a strong of a strong set of anti-God beliefs. That's how. Now, I don't care how much you say you are in defense of what God is in defense of. Sometimes you think that you are defending the righteousness of God and you are trampling over the very law of God. Paul was doing. Paul thought that he was defending the cause of God. But he wasn't. Now, this is the source of all hate, not just in the Bible, but everywhere, all throughout human history. Many people have had a core set of values and beliefs that they are allegiant to. 
Their devotion is to that specific set of beliefs. And even if they claim to do so in the name of God, you realize that they worship the belief rather than they actually worship God. That's why you can have people on both sides of the political arena who have a certain belief and say I'm in defense of what God is in defense of and have so much vitriol and hate towards other people on the opposite side because they don't give a darn about what God is in support of it's about what they are in support of. Because there is nothing in us as Christians that should cause us, no matter how wicked we think a person is, to malign them. Yet, we have right now before us in our midst two amoralistic representatives of the wickedness of either side. And let me tell you something. They absolutely represent the condition of our country. And that is not a good thing. Now, you realize that it is the belief that they worship. And even if you challenge that belief, then you are challenging what they worship. This is the case for everyone who hates, and this was most certainly the case for Saul, and we know it because that's what he writes in his own words. Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Look at how Paul describes his former life here. He says that he was a violent persecutor of the church. And we can see it clearly. He even says that his goal was to destroy the church itself, which means he was hoping to kill everybody who named the name of Jesus Christ. But not just that, but he was advancing further than anybody in Judaism. How do we know that? Because later on in Acts, we're going to see Paul is going to go before Herod Agrippa. He's going to go before Felix, the governor. He is going to go before Caesar. And every one of them is going to testify of his great intellect. Everybody knew who Paul was. Everybody knew how far he was going. And so a part of his cause was to destroy Jesus Christ and his church. Now, we're going to see later on in in just one one chapter when he gets converted, Jesus is going to say to him, not why did you persecute my people? Why did you persecute me? Now, how does Paul source the reason for his hatred for him as it is for everyone who hates? It begins with a deadly combination. I want you all to hear this. It begins, one, with a sinful heart, and then two, a destructive set of beliefs. 
He says, I was extremely zealous. I had a desire that was within my own sinful heart, and it was to uphold the wicked traditions of my forefathers. This is the concoction for all the hate in our world then and now. These people who claim that they hate because that is what they were taught are trying to get off of the hook. But you are as guilty as your forefathers. I don't care how long ago they died. I don't care how nice they were. I don't care what friend you have. I don't care who your neighbor is. If that wickedness is in your heart, no matter what kind of nice it is you try to throw at anybody you don't like, you will be judged for your heart, not what you do. What am I saying? So many people think that they are off the hook for their wickedness because there is a legal system that has prevented them from being as wicked as they would prefer. But what did Jesus say? If you have anger in your heart, hate in your heart, what did he call them? He called them a murderer. That's what Jesus said. I want us to look at Acts 26 as Paul goes even more detail. Acts 26 and 4. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Look at how he describes, and this is what it is, look at how he describes his indoctrination. He says that from his youth, which would have absolutely been the case, he is being taught a system of hate. And he says that if anyone would have called this truth into question, everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew about the hate he had. He said that he lived according to the strictest party, which is that he was in fact a Pharisee. So I want you to see something. There is a merging of his wickedness, but there is also the merging of a system that encouraged his wickedness. And out of that, we see a massive amount of hate. I'm trying to make this as plain as I can to y'all. And I'm trying to see if y'all are following me. What we see in our world is the same thing we have always seen. You got wicked people and a system that causes them, that permits them, that encourages them to be wicked. So what do we get? We get the condition of our world today. We get the warning from Paul in Romans 1. That God gave them up to a reprobated mind, to a debased mind so that they could do everything they desired. That's not even prophetic scripture, yet we are living it out loud. But not just that. What he also says in Romans 1 is that there's a system that encourages 
evil doing. Y'all, that is the reality. It's the hate that you give. And it's coming out of your heart. Now, I want you to look at this. Just take your time. Paul was growing up, okay? He is growing up in an environment that was shaping him. It was molding him as a child. And that is the truth. Now, when you hear this, when you think about this, you may think, well, then it wasn't his fault that he was being taught to hate, right? It's not his fault. And Jesus tells us, if either any of you will lead one of these children astray, then it's better for you to take a millstone and jump into the sea. So, yes, it is a wicked thing when wicked people teach their innocent children a system of hate. But that's only half of it. What happens when he gets old? The culpability then is on him. The culpability for every single person that has ever lived when they come into a state of accountability to either accept or reject the truth, it is on them. Each one of us will be judged not based on what we were taught, but based on what we did. We'll be judged on who we are, not who our parents were, not what our grandparents believed we will be judged and held accountable based on the lives that we live. So what am I saying? The culpability is on Paul. He is not absolved from personal responsibility. He is guilty. But can you see the wicked pattern of hate? There is a carefully well thought out system that cultivated that hate in him and it was infusing his his wickedness with its wickedness. Now when he says that he was zealous he means that he also thought that what he was doing he was in fact doing for God. Let me tell you something because a lot of people struggle with this. A lot of people think because they vote for a particular party or if they believe a certain set of beliefs that they are absolutely doing what God wants them to do. So the question that we need to wrestle with is, how do I know that I'm really upholding the cause of Christ and not my own cause? And I think it's simple. The cause of Christ, in other words, living for Jesus Christ will never cause you to trample over the law of Christ. What is the law? According to Jesus, it's two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you cannot do that because you are upholding a particular set of beliefs, you have disregarded Jesus Christ. And you are living according to your own religion. 
You are worshiping your own idol God. And there are people on both sides, liberal and conservative, who are doing it. In one sense, you are for lives that matter. All lives matter, yet only the lives that you say matter. All the lives matter until somebody breaking in your house and, you know, rights for guns. And all lives matter until you come to my house, right? Or on another sense, black lives matter, yet you endorse a system that has killed more black babies than the police. It's Planned Parenthood, just in case you didn't know that. What's even more damning, and I'll go ahead and break this news to you. In the 1950s, Planned Parenthood was created by white liberals to do what? To get rid of the black people problem. I got an undergrad in history, folks. I know what I'm talking about. I ain't making it up. I ain't got no reason to. It was created to eliminate us, and now that is the linchpin for so many of the people who vote for these people. And then on one hand, you got a lot a party that says we are pro-life, but then let a man get murdered in cold blood. Now we got to unravel his history and figure out why he was so deserving to die, not realizing that every single one of us is deserving to die. I ain't trying to confuse you. And I'm not trying to make you think, well, which way should I vote? Because that really ain't got nothing to do with this. What I'm trying to get you all to see is that don't let your trust be in the wickedness of this world. Because each side is equally wicked. That's the reality. That is the reality. Now, what we see happen with Paul, what we see happen in our days, that they hate it so much that they relaxed the law in their own hearts so they could condemn those who they claimed were breaking it. So the first thing that we've seen is that one of the causes of hate is a strong set of anti-God beliefs and how those play out. The next cause for hate is our second point. It's our final point. It's a disregard for life. It is a disregard for life. And to be more specific, it is a disregard for the lives that don't look like your own. There you go. Now, hate comes with a disregard for lives that are not like their own. This is not just a disregard that is merely a dislike for the other, but it is the one that is willing to both practically and systematically eliminate people that do not look, talk, behave, believe like they do. Practically, which means... Whatever I need to do face-to-face to, face to eliminate you, I'm willing to take that chance. Systematically, I will create a set of rules and laws to eliminate you. We see all of that wickedness taking place in our lives. 
That is exactly what Paul did. But that is because that is what was consistent in his culture. That was directly passed down to him from his family and the hate only intensified with him. We just saw that with Stephen, when Stephen looks all the way back to their history and he points out the rebellion of their forefathers and he even points out how they murdered those who came before them. Isn't it funny how our history is all roses until we actually look back on it? And we realize that the thing that we said was founded on godly principles was founded on anti-God principles to get a means to an end with an agenda. Or how hypocritical is it that our country that was founded on godly principles, when they rebelled against the British government, would now, in defense of those same principles, damn anybody that is trying to rebel against their government. Now, you're saying, are you saying that's right or wrong? I ain't saying nothing. I'm saying the world is full of hypocrisy. And that's the hypocrisy that we see in the life of Paul. His highest desire was to do everything to promote his lineage and his heritage. And while he had the highest regard for his life, he did not care about the lives of anybody he viewed as an opponent. And perhaps the most damning thing about Paul's life is this point is that he was sure that his cause was the right cause. Not only was he sure about that, but he was also sure that he was defending what was defending God. Isn't it amazing how in our arrogance and our ignorance that we think that we are doing the work of the Lord, yet be so far from him? And because of this, Paul has a callous disregard for life. Now, how far did that disregard go? Look at what the scripture says. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. So look at this. Per the custom, Paul didn't care who he affected. He didn't care what life was disrupted because hate permeated his heart and it hardened his mind. He was absolutely paralyzed by his feelings of intense hatred. And it says he was dragging man and woman alike. That means that there was not an ounce of empathy or sympathy in his heart for these people. Now, I hope we're looking at his life. And one, either learning something about our own lives. But also looking at all of his actions and see that they are not simply the result of his environment, but they are the side effects of his heart. Look at what Luke says here. He says that they were scattered. Now, this again is the evidence of pure hatred. Not only is he participating in killing them. But if he can't get to them to kill them, he wants to displace them. He wants them to be as far away from him as they possibly can be. 
Now, at what point does he realize that he has totally crushed the morality from God to defend God? He even testifies of this himself. Acts 26 and 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So there are layers to this. Not only did he persecute them thinking that he was right, but he even voted in favor of Christians dying. And he tried to make them sin before God by causing them to blaspheme against God. He hated them so much that he wanted to justify himself by causing them to utter blasphemous words against God. And then he finally says, in his rage and fury, he drove them to foreign cities. Which sounds kind of familiar. That's all I'm saying. Let me break it down to you. What people, this is what people would call him today. People would call Paul a domestic terrorist. That is what he was. Just like what we see in our world today, this comes from a people who have a strong set of morals and a strong set of values that make them think that they are upholding the truth of God. But I want you to see this. Oftentimes, those of us who claim to defend God's truth do so without an ounce of care or concern or sympathy, or empathy. And is that not the most anti-Christian thing you can do? Is that not the most anti-Christ behavior you could possibly have? That in the midst of people's sin... You don't extend to them the opportunity for redemption. You don't extend to them the opportunity of salvation. All you offer them and hope for for them is condemnation. That means you don't care about the cause of Christ. Because Jesus Christ said that when he came, he came to seek and to save those who are lost. And if you are defending God's truth to the point that it causes you to disregard the souls of the people who you view as wicked, then you're more wicked than they are. Because if the gospel is hidden, it is hidden to those who are lost. Because in Christ, this is what we have. 
We have a high priest who can and does sympathize with us because he felt our infirmities and he knew what it meant to be utterly forsaken. On the cross, he knew what it meant to be castigated because of the hate of the community around you. And even on the cross, dying, he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. That is the standard and that is the only thing that drives out the hate. Hate does not drive out hate. It is perfect love that drives out hate. Darkness does not drive out darkness, but the Bible says that it is the light that drives out the darkness and the darkness can't even comprehend the light. What am I saying to close? Change in our world is not going to happen by wicked politicians. It's going to happen by faithful Christians who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ who go from person to person and tell them the truth of the gospel. That's how it happens. That is how it happens. That is how you drive out the hate that this world has to give. And that's with a heart transplant. And the government can't do that. Only Jesus Christ. But I do want you to see this. When Paul is saved... So that you understand the truth of the gospel. When Paul is saved, he doesn't pay reparations for the deaths that he caused. He doesn't try to offer money for the people he displaced. He doesn't try to make up for his past by giving handouts. Because that undermines what redemption is. Why? Because when we came to Christ, you know what he did with our sins? He took our sins. Everything that we did in the past, no matter how gruesome, no matter how vile it was, what did he do with them? He took them and he threw them into a sea. It says that I will remember your sins no more. So that's the cure for hate. Is that you have a love that would drive the hate out and a belief that would treat the guilty party as if they are innocent. And you say, well, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think if you did something wrong, you should be held accountable for it. And I'm glad you think that. Because you may be held accountable for everything you ever did wrong if you think like that. And let me tell you like this. If it were not for the precious blood of Jesus Christ, every one of us would be held accountable for every single sin fault, deed, 
and word we ever did against the name of Jesus Christ. But he didn't do that. Every single thought I've had, every single word I've spoken, every single deed I've done in my body, he bore it on the cross. And if it was sufficient for me, the most wicked person that I know, if it was sufficient for me, y'all, it's sufficient for everybody. Sometimes I, I realize that we are the minority. Christians are the minority. And I have a sneaking suspicion based on what the Bible describes in the, in the last days that I don't think it matters how we vote. One, God is in control. So I'm not saying don't vote. But the Bible has made end, made the end clear to us. And there is coming a persecution and an oppression for Christians. And it, it won't matter who we put our trust in if it's not in Jesus Christ and him alone. So I pray that as we, in the immediate future, go and exercise our right, one, I want you to do so with a clear conscience and I want you to do so knowing that my hope is not built on this it's not built on my ballot it's not built on legislation my hope is built on Jesus Christ and nothing less let's pray Father God, we thank you for the word today. Lord, um, I could preach easier sermons. I really could. I could. I could go low risk. I could go low controversy. But God, I want to do what glorifies you. And I believe that scripture is too rich and too true for us to trust in anything else. For us to ignore what is clearly happening in our world. So God, as we continue to go forward. Lord, my prayer is that our hearts will be restless until they find rest in you.
God, let our hearts burn until they find rest in you. And Lord, the hate that we see in this world, let us be reminded that it would only be driven out by our perfect love in the example that you set for us on the cross with Jesus Christ. It is in your name that we pray. And everybody say it. Amen. Amen.